Well, this is one of those Sundays where our sermon comes first, so uh, if you're wondering what happened to the music, that's coming a little bit later, all right? The ladies will be back up here to lead us in some more songs, but uh, we're going to jump right into the message. We are right now in, the, in a series called uh, A Crash Course in Christianity. This is a series based on the book of Ephesians, Paul's, letters, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and so we've been working our way through the letter to the Ephesians, and uh, we're kind of just focusing on the core elements of our faith in Christ and the church and all of those important things. And today we come to chapter four. Uh, we're gonna begin chapter four in verse one, and we're calling today's message a crash course in church growth. Now, you know, kids say funny things, don't they? Sometimes without even meaning to. Uh, and it seems like even the most innocent questions can result in the funniest and sometimes even uh, jaw-dropping answers when it comes to kids, uh, especially the, the younger ones, the younger crowd. And you know, one of the age-old questions that parents, teachers, even siblings love to ask young kids is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And often, you know, they get a pretty normal response, something they'd expect a kid to say, oh, I want to be a fireman or a policeman or a doctor or an artist or even a, a superhero or a princess. Those are all common, uh, common answers for young kids. For instance, uh, this kid, his goals were somewhat modest. Um, he, uh, he just wants to grow up and make it another year. <laughs> I'm seven and I want to be eight. How about that? Now, this, this next guy, his, his dreams are a bit grander. Uh, he wants to get a girlfriend, he wants to kiss her, and then he wants to rule the world. <laughs> world domination. A little bit bigger, grander theme, isn't it? Um, so, the, earlier this week, I called my seven-year-old granddaughters because I wanted to ask her this question as I was preparing. And uh, that's my granddaughter right there, Kira. She says, uh, me, when I'm 40, wearing high heels. There she is, uh, age seven. So I said, Kira, what do you want to be when you grow up? And without hesitation, without taking a breath, she said, a ballerina. I want to be a ballerina. But then she thought about it for a moment, and then she said, no, uh, I want to be a, a volleyball. And I said, what? I want to be a volleyball. And I said, you mean a volleyball player? Yeah, I want to play volleyball. All right, and, and then she, but then she changed it. She says, no, I want to be a teacher. And then another minute or two later, she said, no, I want to be, I changed my mind. I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a ballerina. So aren't you glad that you don't have to decide your future when you're seven years old? Isn't that great? So what about you? What about you? Everybody in this room, I think, is, is over the age of seven. Probably most of the folks online watching are over the age of seven. But what do you want to be when you grow up? And then let's, let's get a little bit spiritual, all right? How about us? God's people, his flock, his body, his church. Do we have any aspirations for growing up into something bigger and better than we are now? Well, in today's text from Ephesians, Paul is focused on helping the church to grow up. That's why we're having a crash course on, on, uh, on, on growing up, church growth. In verse 1, very first thing Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4 to his readers, that's us, that's you and me as well as those ancient Ephesians, Paul says that he wants us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. This section that we're going to go into now provides the foundation, 
the foundation for spiritual growth personally, but more importantly, Paul helps us to understand that the individual parts of the body grow, and as we grow individually, the entire body grows through focused unity and a pursuit of maturity in Christ. So these 16 verses we're going to look at are really densely packed with a lot of information. Put a, we could put a lot of sermons together. But, but I think if we just take a look at it and look for a common theme, uh, the common theme that I see that, that flows through this passage is unity, unity. And so that's our big idea for today, if you will. We must make every effort to keep the gift of unity that Jesus gave his life to win for us. So, when we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we see how God intends life to be within the church. Now, this is not a community that never disagrees. Just look around. You'll find somebody that you disagree with something about, right? Um, this is, the, the church is not a utopian colony of where we all just agree on everything and we're all yes people. no. Paul says in this passage, we're, we're supposed to speak the truth, but do so in, in love. And, and also, by the way, the church is not to be a community of conformity either. That's not what human, unity is. It's not conformity, where we all look the same and sound the same, and think exactly the same, vote the same, believe. All, no, that, that's not what we're talking about. Ephesians 4 actually is a portrait of really rich diversity, God gives different gifts to the church, calling each person in the church to a different role. But that diversity is rooted in unity. The unity of the truth that we all love Jesus, that we all serve Jesus. And the unity of our common ground. We're going to look in this passage at seven distinct ones that Paul uh, outlines for us. Unity in these seven vital areas brings us together despite the myriad of differences that exist in all of us. And the purpose of this unity is found in what it makes us. And that is a group of people that are growing in maturity. Paul says we're no longer tossed around by anything and everything. And then another purpose for this growth is that in the midst of this crazy world that we live in, that's just all over the map, the world should be able to look to Christ's church and see a united church. When they look at us, they should be able to see a portrait of Jesus. They should be able to see the whole measure of Christ in us. God has set things up in such a way that if anyone to our ask uh, that doesn't know him would say, well, what, what is Jesus like? Who is Jesus? Is he loving? Is he good? Is he just? Is he, is he generous? Does he comfort the oppressed? Will he confront the oppressors? And Jesus has set it up so that all the world should have to do is to look to us, to look to the church to get the answer of who Jesus is. So all of that is the introduction to where we're going to go this morning. So let's jump into this crash course on church growth. And as 
as we do, we'll see that God grows his church to become more like Jesus through a distinct set of unified beliefs and three very specific unified actions. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's begin first of all with this idea of maintaining unity. Paul calls us to maintain unity. As we grow up on our Christian journey, we're called to to walk or to travel in a specific direction or to maintain our course. That word maintain simply means to keep an existing state or to preserve from failure or decline. So how do we do that? Well, we maintain unity via our attitudes and our beliefs. So let's read the first three verses of our text together. The words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians chapter four. Ready? I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. The Word of God. So Paul spent the whole first three chapters, we've looked over those over the last six or seven weeks, and he used those three chapters to lay what we might call a theological foundation of God's plan. All right, it's all kind of doctrinal stuff and theological stuff. And now, beginning here in chapter 4, Paul starts to get pretty practical. Here's all the truth I gave you in the first three chapters. Here's how the truth works out in chapters four, five, and six. And he begins to make some very specific applications to his readers. That's us, right? Since God's plan is to bring all believers in Christ together as one body to serve and to minister, then The readers of Ephesians need to work at, Paul says, maintaining or preserving what God has already done. You catch that? You see, friends, we don't create unity. We don't do that. God has already done that. Our job is to maintain it or to preserve it. In this passage that we just read, Paul only gives one command. The only command word in there that's written in the imperative, which means this is something you must do, all right? It's not a choice. The command that Paul includes in this passage is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Paul says walk in the right direction. Maintain the right course. Go the right way. Everything else that follows are phrases that expand on that one command. Now, since we are our Father God's workmanship, we are created in Christ Jesus to be his one body, we are called to preserve the unity that God created. And we do that through a whole bunch of qualities that he lists here. Humility and gentleness and patience and loving tolerance. Did you know that a single strand of spider silk is thinner than a human hair, but it is five times stronger than steel of the same width. Think about that for a moment. And so a spider silk rope, if you could get all of those little strands of spider rope and you could weave them together into a, like a two inch rope, 
it would have awesome strength. On its own, it could do little, but do you know that that two-inch strand of spider silk could literally stop a Boeing 747 as it rumbled down the runway? On its own, one strand could do little, but bound together with other strands into a rope, it would have amazing, awesome strength. And friends, that is like the church. That is like the church on our own. We are vulnerable. We're weak. But standing together with our brothers and sisters, maintaining the unity that God has created for us, woven together in the bond of peace, we can accomplish much. And so today, this morning, I want to encourage you to identify the character traits from this passage that you can use to help preserve the unity, maintain the unity that God has already created. So take a look at that list and evaluate which is strongest and which is weakest in your life. And then I want to challenge you to begin to formulate a plan, a plan to strengthen the character traits that are weak in your life. And if you need help with this, a great way is to reach out to a brother or sister in Christ and study these traits together. And then you can both create your own individual maintenance plan. You see, our task, friends, is to maintain unity by pursuing the right character traits in our life. In fact, we could say that these character traits are like the, the tools that we use for maintenance and upkeep. So look at those tools there, humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with others. There's, there's one that we need to work on, right? Maybe not you, me though. Eager. Are you eager for unity? Those are character traits, all right? But what is that unity that we're eager for? What is it based on? What is the foundation of the unity that we're called to maintain with our tools? Well, we might call this next section the parts of unity. If you've got the tools... You've got to have the parts to put together, right? So let's read this next section together. Verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4. Here we go. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, that is a powerful passage of Scripture. I mentioned in the introduction that this passage is just packed with important teachings. This section of, of three verses here, this could be a, a complete sermon series. We could do a sermon on every one of those seven ones, but that's for another time and another place. But this morning, I just want to briefly kind of breeze through these seven facets or parts of unity that God calls us to maintain in the church. Unity is defined by these seven truths, these seven ones that are listed here by Paul. You know, in Scripture, the number seven often represents perfection or holiness or completion. It's a full representation of the Lord. So these seven parts, this list is not for us to, to kind of pick and choose our favorite. 
It's not for us to discard the parts that don't fit the, the, the way that we want them to fit. They're not our favorites. The list is not for us to, to dissect and say, oh, I like this, but I don't like this. No. This is what God gives us to maintain unity. And so the key question for us is not whether it's possible to maintain unity, but whether we are willing to do so, as Paul says, and to be diligent and eager to maintain that unity. So quickly, I want to just consider these seven vital parts of the unity that God calls us to, the seven ones. The first one, he says there is one body. One body means that we cannot separate ourselves from other Christians. Even if we wanted to, since we are one and not many, we are forced to move beyond the individualism of contemporary faith in Christianity, especially in American culture today. You know, we love our individualism, our rugged individualism as, as Americans. And that transfers right into our faith. But Paul says there's only one body. And so it's not all about me, but it's about we as we connect together in the one body, connection with his body, the church, which is the body of Christ. He goes on and he says, not only is there one body, there's one spirit. And we as the people of God are animated by this one spirit. That means we're filled, we are gifted. God's spirit is life-giving in us. There are not two spirits leading us because there is only one and he cannot lead us differently and so if it seems to you that the spirit of God is leading you in one direction while others are going a different direction or the spirit of God is confusing you by leading you in multiple directions then what are we to do well I'll tell you what we're to do it's then that it's time to go back to the manual right as we maintain the unity, we go back to the manual. It's imperative that we go back to check on how each of us has interpreted what the Spirit of God wanted. Because if we're going in opposite directions, that's not unity, is it? And that's not what God wants. That means we must be led by the Spirit. Not by our own inclinations, not by our own personal preferences, not by our own personal interpretations, but rather by God's Spirit breathing truth into our life. One body, one spirit. By the way, the Spirit of God is never divisive. You understand that? If there's division because of the Spirit, that's not from God. The Spirit is like a strong, constant wind pushing us back into unity with one another. You ever walked into a really strong wind and it just kind of, whoa, it kind of pushes you back? That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is directing us towards unity, but sometimes we fight against that because we want to go our own way because we're individuals. But we have to remember we are a part of the one body with the one Spirit and it's our duty to follow God's Spirit. The teaching of unity is at all times calling us back to oneness in Christ. One body, one spirit. Number three, one hope of your calling. We have only one hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. Jesus says of himself that he is the way. The way, the truth, the life. 
And so together, we hope in the same Jesus to deliver us from our sins. We don't have different hopes. Our hopes are set on the same Savior to rescue us from our pitiful condition of sin. And so, friends, our hope is not in a government or a political party or an economic system or any other man-made system. Our hope, our one hope, must be in Jesus alone. And that leads right into the next one. One Lord. One Lord. Having only one Lord means that we are loyal to one alone. That means we can't have other commitments that call us to lessen our allegiance to him because he's the one Lord. We love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There might be other authorities and responsibilities in this life, but ultimately, we all have one Lord, one ruler, one master who is over all and in all and through all. And we must follow him first and foremost. One Lord and then one faith. One faith, our common faith, follows our hope in our one Savior. Our salvation is well-defined. There's not two or three or four different faiths. We can't say as the world does that all the religions are the same. That God is some warm, fuzzy figure up there that kind of flows through all of a man's different interpretations. No. There is only one faith, and our faith is in Christ's work for us on the cross. Without Jesus, there is no genuine saving faith. That's pretty narrow, isn't it? But that's what our Lord teaches us. Our one faith helps us to rise above this world's thought patterns by reminding us that apart from Jesus, we have nothing. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Number six, Paul thought that uh, uh, through this one baptism, he is speaking of the way in which we are saved. You know, baptism was... was was not an issue back in in the early church. They just did it. But it it has become one of the most divisive issues of the modern church today. That's astounding to me. The word baptism simply means to plunge or to submerge. And that is exactly what we ought to do. The early church did not practice sprinkling or any other modes. There was no room for personal preference. Baptism was always for those who could clearly understand the process of repentance, a change of heart that leads to a change of action. For those that could understand their own need to die to self. Thus, baptism is always for those who can understand what it means. That means it's not for babies or for very young children, but for believers who can clearly can submit to Jesus as Lord. And so by God's careful design, the spiritual process of new birth is represented by the physical act of baptism. You see, friends, baptism is a beautiful gift from God to us so that as we die to ourselves and commit to that one lordship, We receive his spirit. We have our sins washed away. And it is sad and it is horrible that what is meant as this beautiful participation in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection has become a dividing wall, a point of argument 
for many in modern Christianity. Paul's very clearest teaching and picture of baptism is found in Romans chapter 6, his letter to the Romans. I want to just read that passage as a part of it briefly with you. Paul says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. That is the beautiful picture of baptism, sharing together in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our one Lord, our one hope, our one baptism. And then finally, Paul concludes this section by telling us about the one God and Father of us all. We don't have two fathers. You know, if you were to go to China or Singapore or Africa or Latin America or India and you were to meet a Christian there, they are your brother and sister in Christ. We are one family because we have one God and Father. When we are born again into a new life, as Paul just described as we read there in Romans 6, we are born into one family because there's only one father. And as his children, we share God's image together. We ought to look like our daddy. We are born into one family by the same one father. We share that image together and we will forever share our Father's riches in Christ. That's our inheritance. So friends, these seven ones, these seven parts, if you will, form the solid foundation for church unity that we are called to maintain. And we do that through our proper attitudes and our proper beliefs. And in fact, everything else is secondary. You see, the true church is God's dwelling place and he lives in every believer. So friends, let us constantly be on guard to not allow any attitudes or personal preferences or interpretations or these secondary issues or behaviors or lifestyles. May we not allow those things to disrupt the unity that we are called to maintain that is built on this foundation of these seven truths. Well, next after focusing on maintaining the foundation of unity, we wanna consider how we might, number two, attain unity. We're called to maintain unity, but we have to attain unity as well. He wanted to conduct. His conducting style, however, was peculiar to be polite during soft musical passages, he'd crouch extremely low. For loud sections, he'd often leap up into the air, even shouting at the orchestra. His memory was poor. Once he forgot that he had instructed the orchestra not to repeat a section of music. And then during the performance, when he went back to repeat that section, the orchestra went forward. 
And so he stopped the peace, hollering, stop, wrong, that will not do, again. For his very own piano concerto, he tried conducting from the piano. At one point, he jumped up from the bench, bumping a candle off the piano, nearly starting a fire in the theater. At another concert, during one particularly enthusiastic moment in the music, he literally knocked over one of the choir members. During one long, delicate passage, he jumped high to cue a loud entrance, but nothing happened because he had lost count and signaled the orchestra too soon. As his hearing worsened, his musicians tried to ignore his conducting and get their cues from the first violinist. Finally, the musicians pled with him to go home, to give up conducting, which he finally did. His name? Ludwig von Beethoven. As the man who many consider to be the greatest composer of all time learned, no one is a genius at all trades. Well, in this next section, we see that Paul teaches us how we can attain unity, how we can make beautiful music together, and that is via equipping and serving one another. We're going to skip down to verse 11 in our text. Let's read this together, verses 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. Amen. So what does Paul mean when he calls us to attain. To attain, that word means to achieve, to gain, to reach a goal, to come into possession of. You see, the gifts God gives so that we might attain or reach the unity he creates, the unity that he provides, the gifts God gives are people. They're people. In our list here, we see apostles and prophets and preachers and shepherds, and they're all to be seen as gifts for the church. Gifts for the church to prepare the church to serve, to minister, to do good. Using the metaphor of a body, Paul points out that the purpose of these gifts is to promote ministry, to promote maturity, to promote the mission among God's people. In other words, every Christian has a significant part to play in God's plan for the church. Let me repeat that. Every single Christian has a part to play in God's plan for the church. And I'll tell you this right now. Your part is not to come on Sunday for an hour and sit here and then go home. There's more for you to do, to be, to pursue so that together we can maintain unity. God has graciously equipped some believers in the church to lead the church. And then he chooses and he saves individuals, filling us all with his Holy Spirit. And he gives each one of us spiritual gifts, which work in harmony with our natural God-given talents. 
You see, God prepares his people to serve one another, to become leaders and training others to serve. And he desires all of us to attain, to gain, to reach maturity and a full knowledge of his son. And like Mr. Beethoven, we can fight and struggle and pursue areas outside of our giftedness, insisting that our way is the best way, or, or we can come to understand who God created us to be. And in doing so, we may find that the things that we do for Christ will be amplified and impact others in great ways, maybe more than we even realize. <clears throat> and so friends, what do you hope to attain? May we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, finally, as we maintain the unity that God has created and called us to, and as we attain or reach the unity and maturity that he desires for us, together we must also clearly, number three, explain unity. Explain unity. Paul's explanation or reason for our need of unity could basically be summed up like this. We were mixed up, but now we are growing up, and together we are being built up. Let's read this passage together, verses 14 through 16 of our text. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. You see, God wants us to grow up by being vitally connected to Christ and his church. But you know what happens? Sometimes, some of us never grow up. We're stunted in our growth. That's because our growth is impeded. In, in verse 14, Paul gives a couple of images that relate to this impediment of our spiritual growth. First, he says that our, our growth is impeded by our immaturity. Our immaturity, in verse 14, he says, then we will no longer be children. All right, he's painting a picture here for us. As, as in any good argument, Paul starts with the negative before he moves to the positive. So he starts describing a child before he describes what it looks like to be a mature adult. And so he says, we will no longer be infants, juveniles, unlearned, unschooled, untutored. You know, in the original language, that, that word that's translated as child or infant, you know what it really means? Ignorant or stupid. Think about that for a moment. He says, so that we may no longer be stupid. Paul doesn't want us to be stupid. Aren't you glad that the English version translated is no longer children? It's a little softer, isn't it? You know, nothing is as dangerous or as disastrous as a person who comes to know Christ and then suddenly feels like they've reached maturity. 
It's like a first grader on the first day of school, in the first hour of school, would stand up and say, well, I've got my education, I'm done now. No. That's immature. Now, there's a difference between childishness and childlikeness. We're called to be childlike, aren't we? We're called to enter the kingdom of God like a child. Picture a, a young child that is clinging desperately on to her, her mom or dad in a stormy night. And the parents are firmly and securely holding on to that frightened child. That's what childlikeness looks like. We're called to be childlike to enter the kingdom, but we are not called to be childish. That's completely different. It is immaturity that keeps us so often from God's intended growth. And at the root of immaturity, you know what's often there? Selfishness. It's all about me. You think about a young child. Everything revolves around them, right? They're ignorant of how the world works. They're not mature. And friends, if we're not careful, we can lapse into the same thing in our spiritual life. And then the next image that pops up in in verse 14 is not just immaturity, but instability. Paul describes the unstable, what does he say there? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, there's an instability factor in immature Christians that that buys into every new idea. Oh, I heard this, isn't this great? Every new book, every new teaching, every so-called prophecy that comes along. Friends, we are called to be believers that pursue maturity. And to do so, that means we measure everything by God's word and by his spirit. Not by our personal inclinations or our feelings because something seems good or feels good. Not by our personal preferences. We are called to pursue unity. Friends, the strength of the church depends upon you and it depends upon me as we pursue growth and unity together. Let me read those last verses again. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you know what that means, friends? When each part is working properly, we can do great things for God. But when parts aren't working properly, things don't go so well. Think about when a part's not working properly in your car. It could be a small part or it could be a big part. But when that part's not working right, It impacts your ability to get along in life, doesn't it? The same is true of the church. The church grows up when each part works properly. So each of us must discover how we can maintain and attain unity. A poet once wrote these words. He said, I am only one, but still... I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. 
And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. I love that. It's written by a man by the name of Edward Hale. Friends, brothers and sisters, we are not a perfect congregation. Sorry to let you know that. We aren't everything we ought to be. We still need to mature beyond what we are now. And in fact, we will never reach a point of complete maturity in this world. But when we all do that something that we can do for Christ, then we will have contributed to making this a truly unified congregation. And friends, that gives pleasure to our Lord. Let's pray together.